a professor of philosophy at the university of california, santa cruz. he has written a couple dozen peer-reviewed journal articles mostly on philosophy of religion and bayesian epistemology he also maintains a list of philosophers with whom he has mountain climbed which includes alvin planiga boss von frossen bradley montan and past guest evan fails richard welcome to the show well thank you it's a pleasure to be here First, Rick, could you please share with us your own faith journey and what your worldview is today and how you got there? Sure. I, you know, I think I've always considered myself to be a Christian. I was raised by my mother to believe in God. I remember her teaching me at a very early age um, you know, these Christian beliefs. And so basically I've always thought that God existed from the time I was young. Um, as I grew up, I used to attend various um, Protestant churches, um, but you know, eventually I ended up in the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, which I really like for its emphasis on mystery. Um, you know, mystery is a very important part of my life, whether it be in religion or science. Uh, Aristotle, for example, said philosophy begins in wonder, and I certainly haven't lost my sense of wonder. Uh, much of the world is mysterious to me, and so. Religion is a very large part of my life, and I try to take that into account when I see philosophy, which, after all, begins with our pre-philosophical beliefs. Let me also say a few other things about perhaps what somebody would want to know about if they say, why do you believe? So, basically, I see no good reason to give up these beliefs that I was, that I hold or that I was raised with. I, I don't really see a good reason to become a a naturalist and, and so for that reason I sort of continue you know looking at the world the way I do I mean I certainly don't understand everything and I think there's a, a lot of mystery and so forth that I don't understand but that the mystery doesn't seem to me to be a good reason to change any of my fundamental beliefs about the world uh, another way of looking at it when sometimes people ask me about this is I think in the, when you really get down to the sort of bottom line, one reason I believe is because it really seems right to me. In other words, when I, you know, and what, what better reason could I have for believing something than, than that it really seems right? And so, for example, the, I, I really think the world, you know, contains, um, you know, um, there's a religious aspect to it. So anyway, there's, um, it's, it, it'd be sort of strange for me to give up something that really seems right to me. So that's sort of why I believe. You know, I haven't seen a good reason to, and it seems right. Okay. Well, for a while now, I'd like to talk about the most popular argument for atheism, the problem of evil. And some of your work is focused on Planinga's free will defense to the problem of evil. So, what kind of argument from evil was Planinga responding to, and what is Planinga's defense against it? Okay, yeah, well, the problem of evil, I mean, that, that's a very, um, I mean, there, that refers to many things, and I, I think it's unfortunate that we call it this in philosophy, because I think the problem of evil is really mostly a spiritual, or psychological, or maybe a, an emotional problem. I mean, you know, evil is terrible. There's, there's horrendous evil in the world. And if you're 
if that doesn't affect you in a deep way, I mean, I think something's wrong with you. Yeah. Now, um, but, and I think because of that, some people have tried to generate a philosophical argument that would use that um, to show there's a problem with uh, traditional religious Christian Islamic or Judaic belief. And the original argument, or at least, well, one of the most popular arguments a while back was the deductive argument from evil. And this was an argument in which it was claimed that the existence of evil was actually logically inconsistent with an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing um, God. And that would be very powerful. If that was true, then the religious believer would be guilty of just believing a logical inconsistency, which would be really problematic you know, for the rationality of religious beliefs. And so, um, and so I think the deductive argument from evil is best seen as claiming that there's an internal inconsistency in the in religious belief. Now, one of the first, well, probably one of the best expositions of this argument was due to Mackey. And Mackey basically, well, he, he was arguing that evil was inconsistent with the existence of a all-powerful, all-good God. And he, he asked a very interesting question. Mackey said, why doesn't God create a world in which everybody freely chooses the good? You know, if God can create any logically possible world there is, there is a logically possible world where everybody freely chooses the good. So why doesn't God bring that about? And that, that's, <laughs> that was a very good question to ask. And if you look at these free will defenses like Mac, I mean, you know, these problems of evil such as Mackey's, the basic assumption is that there, there should be some action that God could have done that would have resulted in there being free beings that always choose the good, that would never choose the evil. Basically, God should have done something. He should have acted in such a way that the world would be such that everybody freely chose the good. So that's the challenge. Well, that's the point where um, you know, Plantinga entered the discussion, and Plantinga, he started off by looking at that, at Mackey's argument, and in a minor point, which we may come back to in a minute, he said, really, at most, this really shows that um, that um, there would, if God existed, there would be no evil that God didn't have a good reason to permit. Mm-hmm. But that isn't really the core of his argument. And, you know, Plantinga developed something called the free will defense. And this really is one of the great arguments in uh, contemporary philosophy of religion. And, and I think it'd be fair to say that you know, Plantinga really revolutionized philosophy of religion when he came up with this and other similar arguments. And the reason why is he started applying very formal tools in analytic philosophy that had been developed and applied them to philosophy of religion. And I sort of believe he was the first person to do this. So he gave a very sophisticated argument in which he tried to show that evil was consistent with an all-powerful, all-good God. And and that was very important. And he um and even if you're not especially interested in philosophy of religion, it's well worthwhile studying. For example, because he he used a lot of formal techniques. He looked at counterfactual conditionals, he looked at modal logic and mixed them together. So he would evaluate the truth 
of certain counterfactual conditionals at various possible worlds, which is very tricky and subtle. And so this argument, I mean, I, it was a great leap forward in philosophy. And, it, and I always recommend students to study this just because you can learn so much philosophy by looking at the details of it. Okay, so what Planiga was trying to do, or in his free will defense, was, and I'll just say this sort of generally, was say that it's possible that no matter what God does, humans may do some evil. In other words, maybe all the, it could be the case, it's possible, that of all the actions open to God, no matter which of those God shows, humans, whatever humans he created, they would all choose evil at some point. Now, what that would mean, if that were true, is that it's possible that God could not create a world in which he had free beings that always freely chose the good, which would be an answer to Mackey. And of course he gave this a really cool name. He called it Transworld Depravity. <laughs> so if you if you if you're a human and you if this is the case, if that if no matter what God situation God put you in, you would do at least one evil action, then Planiga says you have transworld depravity. <laughs> and the actual definition's rather detailed, it's not too important for us. But the idea is if this if it was the case that everybody could have transworld depravity then it would not be within God's power, even though he's all-powerful, to create a world in which everybody freely chose the good. Um, let, me, let me go at it a little different way. Another way of seeing that, um, I wrote this up in an article once, was look at all the worlds in which people only choose the good. You know, the type of worlds Mackey was thinking about. Think of all the worlds where everybody freely chooses the good. Now, take the first choice in there. I don't know, maybe it's Adam, you know, doing whatever, going to choose something. Take the first choice. It could be true, it's possible, that if God were to put Adam in that situation, Adam would choose wrong. Okay? If that's the case, God could not bring about that world. Well, maybe that would be the case for every world in which we all freely choose the good. So myself, I call those worlds unobtainable. Those are a world in which everybody freely chooses the good is unobtainable. If God were to try and bring it about, the first person to make a choice would go wrong. And so anyway, it's possible that every world in which everybody freely chooses the good is unobtainable. Well, if that's the case, God sort of didn't have any of these great choices. In other words, if he's trying to decide what world to create, he'd suddenly realize, wow, all the um, worlds where everybody freely chooses the good are sort of off limits. No matter what I would do, I couldn't bring those about. So then you have to start settling down for second choices, we might say. And so if that's the case, that would sort of give a good reason for God to permit evil. Namely, in order to have the good of free choices, he'd have to permit at least one instance of evil. And so, anyway, that's, that's the basic free will defense that Planica devised. Yeah, and the idea is that uh, God could be morally permitted to create a world that had some evil uh, as long as, you know, it had some outweighing good. For example, free will is supposed to have 
some kind of intrinsic moral goodness. And so he created a world with free will, even though it meant necessarily that there was some evil. That's at least possible, right? Is that what Plantinga is saying? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's what I'm I, Yes, in other words, basically, the, the good of him, he might not have been able to make any world which everybody freely chose the good. And maybe the world in which there's some evil and, um, and a lot of good would be a good world. And so God would have a good reason for permitting that world. Now, yeah, anyway, that's the basic idea. Now, note, um, one thing I should say is that this is just a defense. The only purpose of this, um, the Plantinga's defense here, was to show that evil and good are logically consistent. It's, um, he wasn't trying to give a theodicy, which would be, let's say, God's actual reason for doing this. So there's no claim that this is true or anything. The only claim is that it's logically possible. Right. Because even if that's the most implausible story you could think of, if it's at least logically possible, then he has shown that evil and the existence of God aren't logically inconsistent. Right, and that was the only goal. Right, and, and, and if you think about it, it's sort of a, a wild idea that every possible person suffers from trans-world depravity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean that'd be a, well, that'd be a strong claim. But anyway, but that, you know, Plantinga's not claiming that's true or anything. He, he was just claiming that it's possible. Mm -hmm. and, and so if God wanted to have creatures that, you know, were freely choosing, you know, free creatures, he'd have to allow some evil. And, you know, that, that was the claim. So it was really a direct answer to Mackey, who said there are some actions that God could have done that would have brought about a world where everybody freely chose the good. And Planck is saying, well, that's not obviously true. It's possible um, that could be false. Mm -hmm. Now, when Planega came up with this rather ingenious defense, what were some? What did some of the atheists say in response, uh, in order to show that the free will defense failed? Well, I think um, I mean this argument. I, I don't know if I've. Um, well, I, I skipped a lot of the details, mm -hmm. and it is very subtle and very. It's very technical, very subtle, because you're evaluating subjunctive conditionals or counterfactual conditionals at different possible worlds. And so most objections to it really don't misunderstand it. And what I tell my students in my class is that this is the hardest thing we ever cover in a philosophy of religion class, just because it's so difficult to get clear about the actual theory, the actual claim. And so most objections that people come up with actually just misunderstand. So I've refereed articles for journals, you know, that professional philosophers write, and they usually simply misunderstand it. What's surprising is in the literature, um, both theists and atheists generally believe that Plantinga solved this problem, which is really rare in philosophy. It's really hard in philosophy to find um, a lot of people saying this problem has been solved. But you can find real distinguished philosophers, you know, who who will write, you know, people such as William Alston, William Rowe. There we have, you know, Christians and atheists. Um, well, and Matthew that himself. Well, I don't know. I don't know what he said about it. I, I think he always he always thought it wouldn't work or something. But eventually, philosophers generally tended to veer away from the deductive argument from evil because they thought this this sort of um, 
approach generally worked. And so almost all the discussion now in the problem of evil revolves around the evidential argument from evil, or sometimes called the probabilistic argument from evil. In this version, what they're trying to do is say, sure, evil may be consistent, you know, logically consistent with a good, all-powerful God, but it is certainly evidence against it. And so, for example, that's where you get the work of William Rowe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and before we get into that, I do want to talk about that, but I'll just uh, quote Mackey's concession oh, sure. from uh, Miracle of Theism. Since Plantinga's defense is formally possible, we can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. It's from uh, page 154 of his, his book. So oh, e okay. even Mackey did actually concede the success of the free will defense against Mackey's problem or argument from evil. Well, that's interesting because in so many... Um it's been a while since I've read that. There, in so many passages in that book, he makes some rather, um, I don't know, what we would call it, interesting comments about Flanagan. You know, he, 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 at one point, he calls him, I think he calls him St. Alvin because he's managed to pervert the sound under, the understanding of so many otherwise rational people. And so, I, but anyway, um, no, that's a, Mackey's book is very good. It's one of the best books, you know, I'm trying to present an attack on theism out there. Well, yeah, so I think you're right that most people have moved on from logical problem of evil, although uh, a young philosopher named uh, Nathan Hanna has a paper coming out called Resurrecting the Logical Problem of Evil, in which he tries to resurrect the logical problem of evil. But yeah, I think you're right that most philosophers have moved on to an evidential argument from evil, such as Rose. So how does that argument from evil work then? There's various versions of it, but uh, the, the basic idea is that evil is in some sense evidence, you know, against um, an all-powerful, all-good God existing. And I've looked at some of these in articles I've written. I, I sort of think when you look at the details, they never quite work out. Um, so let's go back. You know, basically, I mentioned that Plantinga thought that the most you could get out of Mackey's type of questions was that there should be no evil that God does not have a good reason to permit. And, and Roe, you know, sort of um, deals with this a lot. And so Roe spends a lot of time arguing that our ignorance of a good reason for God to permit evil, you know, is evidence that there is no good reason for God to permit evil. If it were the case that there was no good reason for God to permit evil, that would be a serious problem for, for the religious person. Mm -hmm. Because then they would be saying, well, there's all this evil, there's God, God um, could permit us yet a good reason, but there is no good reason. I mean, that'd be a real tension in a religious person's beliefs. And so I think that's why Roe, you know, um, was right to concentrate on the ideas, could we show that there is no good reason for God to permit evil? Let's look at it this way. Suppose we claim that we have some evidence that favors one theory over another. One way to look at that is to decide if that's right, is to see how likely the evidence is on each theory. So let's look at how likely is it, here, our, our evidence is that we're unaware of a good reason for God to permit evil. You know, let's just grant that. I mean, I know various people have proposed theodicies out there and proposed reasons um, for God to permit evil, and, and I think they're interesting. I mean, you get people like Richard Swinburne, who has this, you know, well, you know, this lengthy, defense of this. And 
I guess at the end, I have to admit, I'm never quite convinced that this is really everything that will really solve the problem. And so I'm more than willing to admit that we, we really don't know God's reason to permit evil. You know, it's a mystery to me. So I'll grant wrote that. And so now let's think about this. Is that reason to think that there is no such reason? Now, one way we can do that is look at how likely our evidence is on naturalism and how likely that evidence is on, let's say, Christianity. So our evidence is that we're ignorant of a good reason to permit, uh, for God to permit evil. Okay, well, on naturalism, we go, okay, how likely would it be, let's say if God doesn't exist, that we would not know a reason for God to permit evil? Okay, well then, now, on, on the Christians, most um, Christians, I think, would hold that basically God has a good reason, but let's say it's he hasn't told us or it's incomprehensible to us, or something like this. Now, how likely is it that we would be unaware of a good reason for God to permit evil, given that God's there and there's no, and we're not able to understand the reason? Now, for me, it's really hard to compare these probabilities. Uh, it isn't at all obvious to me that our ignorance of a good reason for God to permit evil is more likely if God doesn't exist than if he does. But that's what you would need to have in order to have an evidential argument for evil, from evil. In other words, what, what's really unfortunate is in the literature on the evidential argument from evil, basically no, everybody talks about, oh, we we're not aware of a good reason for God to permit evil. And this is therefore evidence against, let's say, Christianity. But that's only evidence against it if it would be more likely on, let's say, naturalism. And I, I don't know why that would be the case. I mean, I, for me, it's not at all clear why that probability would be higher on naturalism. The, um, I mean, after all, I mean, if, if God doesn't exist, what would you at all, I mean, would you think you would... No, there would be no reason. We'd be unaware of a good reason for God to permit evil or not. I mean, that's really hard to to see what that probability would be. Um, here, let me let me perhaps I can explain it a little better. There's there's various ways you can go with this. Suppose the Christian God doesn't exist. Well, um, maybe maybe Zeus exists. Now, if Zeus exists, how likely would it be that we would be unaware of a good reason for God to permit evil. Or suppose there's no supernatural beings, and we just um, came about by chance. How likely would it be that our minds would be reliable on knowing there was no good reason for God to permit evil? And, and these are very tricky probabilities, and I see no real discussion of this in the literature, but that's what you really need. Um, that, that's, these are the probabilities that are crucial in an evidential argument for evil. And so I sort of wish people would talk about these. Hmm. And you don't think there have been any substantial papers on these topics, or just not enough of them? Um, none. <laughs> the, the sad thing is, I mentioned this um, several years ago in a paper on Roe, and Roe, I think, had like one sentence where I think he was—he said something, <laughs> but he didn't really give defense. And I've always been expecting people to write on this, and and nobody has. And it's 
it just continually surprised me, at least that I'm aware of. I, I have found literally zero papers huh. talking about this. And, you know, I, I think it's an important topic because otherwise, how are we going to, I mean, it's the crucial probability in this um, argument, evidential argument from evil. Mm-hmm. Well, what about Draper's version of the problem? Because uh, he would say the hypothesis of indifference, that the universe is indifferent to our pleasure or suffering uh, is a better explanation for the pleasure and suffering that we see in the world than is the hypothesis that an all-caring and loving God uh, controls the universe mm-hmm. or something like that. It, doesn't that uh, you know, argument to the best explanation approach provide some evidence uh, from evil for the non-existence of an all-loving God? Well, uh, first of all, I, have, you know, I think Draper is... Um, I have great respect for his work. I mean, I think of all the people writing in philosophy of religion on these areas of probability. I mean, he's one of the best. I, I really enjoy all of his writings. I, yeah, I, I think there's a problem in this way of going about it. Um, basically, here a lot of times with theories, there's a sort of central core, and then there's the full-blown theory, like in science. You might have, in philosophy of science, science... Um, philosophers will talk about there's the core of a theory, and then there's various um, full-blown theories, you know, where it's developed. And the same is true, in one sense, in religion. So, um, Draper, what he wants to do is compare the hypothesis of indifference with, um, let's say, the proposition that a good, all-powerful being exists. Instead of looking at it from a, the whole theory, the whole fuller blown belief system, that of Christianity. And I, I guess Paul and I, we have a different view, we have a different methodology. I mean, I'm, I do not think that will work out. I mean, I, in other words, here's the problem. Suppose Draper was right. Suppose that um, the, on the hypothesis of indifference, um, the probability of evil existing was greater than the probability of evil existing on, let's say, generic theism. There's a good, all-powerful God. Uh-huh. I mean, suppose that's right. That, that may be the case. But most religious people are not generic theists. They're either Christians or Muslims or, or Jews, and they believe a lot more than just that God's all good and all-powerful. And so it could be the case that evil is more likely on the hypothesis of, of indifference than on generic theism. But evil may be more likely on Christianity than it is on the hypothesis of indifference. And so I'm very concerned in, in philosophy of religion. I mean, th- this really bothers me, is that people always just talk about evil and, let's say, God existing, whereas I think that's a mistake. What we need to do is look at all of the beliefs, that the naturalist and the Christian hold. Uh, let, let me look at it this way. I, I, I um, sometimes teach courses on probability, and in my course this term, I, I, I showed the class that it could be the case that you know, evil could lower the probability of generic theism and raise the probability of Christianity. You know, these are all logical possibilities. And so it'd be sort of odd for a naturalist to say, well, look, evil lowers the probability of God existing, and so it's a problem of evil, but suppose it raised the probability of Christianity. 
And so what I would like to see is in philosophy of religion, philosophers look at the more developed belief systems of actual people instead of just these abstractions from what they would believe. Because otherwise, you know, you run the risk of it not being real relevant. Well, I think the real problem there is it's hard to consider probabilities concerning such a complex worldview in 20 pages, but oh, yeah. know, <laughs> bare oh, no. theism I mean, might be possible to consider. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's, you know, probability, and when I use it in this way, I just sort of look at it as like logic. It's sort of, it's, we wish to be consistent, so we don't want to violate it. You know, I mean, and I know, for example, Draper and I disagree there. He, he, I think he's writing a whole book on probability now, mm-hmm. for and dealing dealing with um, philosophy of religion, I believe. But um, I, yeah, I tend to look at probability just as the logic of partial belief. Well, like uh, like all kinds of philosophers, we could go back and forth on the problem of evil forever. But I think that was a really great introduction to the issue, so that people will know what philosophers are talking about when they discuss the argument of evil. Yeah, oh, let, me, let me just say one more thing about that is, I guess I really think that it's not all that important for the rationality of believing in God or being a Christian that we're you know, able or unable to give a reason for God to permit evil. And it comes back to what I said about mystery. I, I think it's rational for a Christian to be a, for a person to be a Christian, even if they have no idea why God um, permits evil and things of that sort. And even if there was, oh, in a minute, maybe I'll talk about inference to the best explanation. And the reason why is that whether you look at science or religion or any other aspect of our lives, there's big, important things that we can't explain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I mean, you, you take our scientific theories, there's just, you know, they all have anomalies, problems, things we can't understand. And I mean, I could talk a lot more about this, but I think we don't want to say that if you can't explain something, that you should not be committed to it. I mean, I mean, if your theory can't explain something, you shouldn't be committed to it. Um, I think that'd be a very dangerous principle to accept. Um, also, you mentioned earlier the inference to the best explanation. I. I really think that's probably not the reason most people believe in God. Well, I, mean, I, I shouldn't say I haven't done a survey, but it certainly isn't um, any reason I believe in God. I'm very suspicious of that whole pattern of inference. I suspect it's not very coherent. And so it, it, I'm not too worried about that. Hmm. Well, let's move on and talk about David Hume and miracles, which you've also written about. Long ago, Hume argued that, and there are a couple different interpretations here, but one way of reading Hume is to say that he argued that we couldn't establish the occurrence of a miracle from testimony because we've observed the laws of nature to be unrelentingly regular, but we know that testimony, even group testimony, is often really unreliable. So some people aren't convinced by this argument, but what do you think of Hume's argument? And also feel free to share whatever your interpretation of Hume on miracles is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, you're right. I've written on miracles, and I, I think Hume's argument is mistaken. But before I, I say that, I want to say something that, well, I think there's something right about it. Namely, that even if, even if you're a religious person and believe in miracles, you don't accept all miracle reports. I, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, 
Hume is right that people have a tendency to, you know, maybe exaggerate and, and things of this sort. And, you know, if, if there are certain, I mean, I, you know, you can see the National Enquirer and you'll see, and, you know, something on the front page, and I'm not too inclined to believe these things. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there's, there's something right there of, of that part. Um, but the real issue of miracles, I, I think, is just that of divine action. So, so, for example, I believe the world um, has a religious aspect. You know, I believe God can act in the world, and, um, you know, and so it may proceed differently than it would if we didn't act. Um, we may call these miracles, but the real problem is just of divine action in the world. Because, look, it's very difficult to even decide what a miracle is. You could follow Hume and say a miracle is a violation of law of nature. But then what's the law of nature? I mean, that's not unproblematic. And so the real trick is, I mean, for example, a lot of people may not even believe the concept of a law of nature makes sense. And, you know, if you're an empiricist, you may think there are no such things. And even if you think they do exist, coming up with an account of laws that will um, work in Hume's argument is is very difficult. You can't just say something like... um, Miracles are what all are universal regularities or something, because then, I mean, excuse me, laws of nature are universal regularities, because then miracles become logically impossible. So it's it's very difficult in the literature on Hume's argument just to even say what a miracle is or what a, a law of nature is. And so, you know, Hume's argument had many problems, and I mean, I think he was aware of some of, some of them. So, for example, on one problem with Hume's argument is if you, you would never accept testimony for a new scientific phenomena. You know, let's say all our experience had been of a certain kind, and somebody in the lab created a new particle, a new phenomena. You know, on Hume's account, you, you know, it sort of sounds like you should never believe that, which would be crazy. And Hume himself gives the example, he called it the Indian prince, who had never seen ice or snow. Um, all his experience was that water was in the liquid state. Mm-hmm. And so everybody tells him, oh, if you go north, there's water is solid. You know, and by Hume's argument, you, you should not believe this. And so, you know, certainly Hume's argument needs fixing, you know, to be made more plausible. Mm-hmm. You know, it needs, it need, it needs um, yeah, it just needs to be, um, you know, developed in more detail. Now, so one of the um, persons who, one of the most sophisticated versions of this was due to Mackey, whom you know, we talked about earlier. And Mackey gave, I think, the, you know, really understood the problems with Hume's argument, and he wanted to give a modern version of it. And what he wanted to do was, uh, basically, he said this, let's define a law of nature as the way the world works when God does not intervene. So if God doesn't act, Let's let the law of nature be the way the world would work. So in other words, you know, let's say energy would be conserved or something. And a miracle would be when God acts. You know, let's say God decides to act and do something different. You know, so the world would be different than it would be if he didn't act. Uh-huh. And so Mackey then says, okay, following Hume, we have all this evidence for the laws of nature. That's evidence for how the world acts when God doesn't intervene. And, and we all agree on that, let's say. Now, what Mackey then said is, our evidence for a law of nature, our evidence for how the world acts when God does not intervene, is also evidence that a miracle did not occur. 
Now that, I think, is a really bizarre claim, because let's look at what Mackey is saying. He's saying our evidence for how the world works when God doesn't intervene tells us how the world is going to work when God does intervene. The reason that sounds bizarre is because the whole point of God intervening or acting would be to have things go differently. Why else would he act? So, in other words, our evidence is that if God doesn't intervene, let's say people don't walk on water. Mm-hmm. Why does that mean that people don't walk on water when God intervenes? And that, I mean, that's a strange claim. So let me give you another example. My evidence is that whenever nobody turns on the lights in my house, the lights are off. Does that evidence that when somebody turns on the lights, they're off also? Well, no. And, and that's basically the problem Mackey was claiming, is because to develop a Humean-type argument, Mackey saw that what you want to do is you have to have our evidence about how the world is be evidence against this miracle occurring. And it's very difficult to do that. Because, and, I, and so I think Mackey made, I mean, I think he gave the best account of this. But I think there's just a logical error there because our evidence about how the world acts when God doesn't, how the world behaves when God doesn't act, really tells us nothing at all about how the world is going to act when God does decide to do something. So I think that's the problem with, let's say, Mackey's version of this. Um, I'm not sure if that made sense. Um, the, I, the real key here is, how are you going to define a miracle? I mean, you know, that's what got Mackey into this problem. So well, look at it this way. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in trying to define miracles or laws of nature. I, I think that's a difficult project. For, for example, if we say miracles are violations of laws of nature, is walking on water a miracle? I mean, walking on water doesn't violate any of our fundamental laws of nature. You know, that's certainly consistent with it. And yet I think we would call that a miracle. And so, you know, to really talk about this, we're going to have to figure out how are we going to even characterize a miracle? I mean, because if walking on water is allowed by our fundamental laws of nature, how, why, why do we say that's a miracle? And I think that's a problem, and I don't know the answer. Yeah, those are some tricky issues. One thing I'd love to ask you about that is whenever an atheist brings up human miracles, usually there is a, a Christian in the audience who will bring up uh, John Ehrman's Hume's abject failure. And I often suspect that the neither party has actually read the book, but um, that's a very popular response, and, and you're familiar with Ehrman's book, I, I assume. What was it that? What problems did Ehrman have with Hume's argument regarding miracles? Well, yeah, I mean, I've read the book. I've taught it uh, in a couple of courses uh, in, you know, in the philosophy department here. The, um, I mean, Ehrman was very harsh on Hume. I mean, he, um, I mean, he was very harsh. Uh, basically, he, um, well, even the title's harsh. Right, it is. I mean, he he went through and basically said. There were, um, any, anything that's, that's right in Hume's argument basically wasn't original Hume, was already in the literature out there. So he was very harsh. The, um, a lot of what Ehrman finds, at least the, I mean, he, you know, he really goes through and tries to explicate it and look at the history of the situation. One of the big problems that Ehrman has is that 
Hume seemed committed to what is known as the straight rule. Um, I believe that term goes back to Reichenbach. And the straight rule says if you've observed, let's say, 10 whatever, and all 10 of them, or let's say 70% of them have had this property, believe the probability of those things having that property is 70%. And that's the straight rule. The, the probability is equal to the observed frequencies. So observe nobody if I've observed that every time somebody stepped on the lake they sank, the probability of anybody of every of anybody sinking when they step on the lake and on the lake will be, the probability that they will sink when they step on the water will be on one. Okay, that, that's the straight rule. The the problem is is that uh, you know, as most philosophers recognize, the straight rule is a problem. I mean, you're going to, as I said earlier, you would never then be willing to admit a new scientific phenomenon. Right. You, you would, I mean, you would really hinder science. You couldn't do science that way. And, and so Ehrman thinks Hume is committed to the straight rule. Now, um, Robert Foglin, you know, doesn't think so. Um, Robert Foglin wrote a response to Ehrman. Right. Um, and, um, I actually wrote a review of, the, of that also, and it's a very short book. And he, he gives an interpretation of Hume, which I think is not quite as common, but he tries to, well, in his view, Hume sounds almost like a Bayesian. So I think there are issues that Ehrman brought up that Fogelin did not respond to. So, for example, Ehrman points out that if you have multiple testimony, that it's conceivable that the probability could actually rise quite high for a miracle. And, and unfortunately, Fogelin didn't discuss that. Um, you know, I think it would be interesting to see a discussion of that. I can see why um, people might bring up Ehrman's book. I think it's well worth studying, but it would be unfortunate if they were just thrown out without reading it. <laughs> well, I think that one of the things that Fogelin may have gotten right is, you know, he does point out, hey, Hume gave an example where he would accept testimony on behalf of a miracle. Um, the uh, eight days of darkness over the world uh, example. So doesn't that show that maybe Hume wasn't arguing uh, with the straight rule? It, it may, yeah. I mean, I, I find it very hard to know exactly what Hume, Hume's position was. And, and that, and so I, I think there's a lot of ways to interpret it. I mean, no matter what interpretation you have, I think there's some difficulty. Because, uh, yes, and that's the type of example that Fogelin raises. Um, I think there are, there's other passages that are a little more difficult for Fogelin. But my view is, is I'm not quite as concerned about getting into exactly right historically. Let's be charitable. If we can come up with a good interpretation of it, let's go with that. I mean, in, in other words, I, I think historical things are important. But... I'm more interested in seeing, hey, can we develop a good argument yeah. know, from this? Yeah. Well, I wonder then if you, you know, see too many problems with Hume's argument from miracles, how should we think about something like the claim that uh, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead around 30 AD uh, and and claims that that's knowledge based on a few uh, pieces of testimony from early believers. How, how do we, because normally in history, ancient history, we reject pretty much all other miracle claims, and yet there's this claim that this is one that we should accept and that we have good reason to accept. How do we, how do we even begin to think about those things? 
I know a lot of people, they're very interested in, I guess they call it historical apologetics. They will, they will um, do, they'll give arguments trying to show why we should, um, why even the naturalists should believe, let's say, that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, I've never been as interested in, in these um, types, this, this project. Oh, I guess one reason why is I, I'm not convinced that these issues are really what matter, I mean, what's going to determine whether somebody is a naturalist or a Christian or something like this. And you're going to have to make judgments about how likely something is or not. And I don't see how that can be done in any objective way. You know, that, so uh, somebody doing you know, historical apologetics is going to give some sort of argument, which is going to force the naturalist to say, aha, I guess I must admit Jesus rose from the dead, and if I'm going to be a naturalist, I'm going to have to deal with that. I don't, I don't see any, I don't find those types of arguments very successful. You know, for me, I, I sort of think that, so the reason I would believe this is not because of any historical argument or anything like that. And, you know, I would think most people who are Christians would not believe it for those reasons. It'd be sort of, they, they're already committed to the basic, Christian story, which involves that, you know, it's, um, in other words, it isn't, I, I think very few people are really Christians or Muslims or something because of any sort of argument of that sort. Um, I'm sure there must be some, but that certainly wouldn't um, convince me, those types of arguments. I suppose most Christians believe that Jesus resurrected because the sure. Bible tells me so, basically. Well, I, well, I don't, I don't know if that's. I mean, like it, it could. It's sort of the whole tradition. It's the. Um, it could be. There's many possibilities here. It could be your church tradition. It could be that you feel that God is sort of giving you reason to think this church tradition is right. You know, maybe God is um, sort of. I don't know. We could say it almost speaking to you. God is giving you a reason to say. Um, you know, this is this is correct, or so forth. I mean, you know, the the, the resurrection stories, the resurrection was a belief, you know, long before there was a Bible. <laughs> I mean, I, I think probably, so I mean, those Christians certainly didn't believe it because the Bible said so or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was much later before, you know, it was much later before you had sort of anything we would call the Bible. You know, Christians had already had this you know, sort of set doctrine by then. So I, I guess I'd hesitate to say it because the Bible said so. Well, Richard, do you have any final thoughts for the atheists who will be listening to this show? Um, <laughs> um, no, I am. Um, well, I, I guess what I hope is that, I mean, I, I hope that whoever listens to this, whether they're atheist or theist, that they'll find it useful or beneficial and, you know, that it will encourage them to think about these issues. I mean, that's my hope. <laughs> well, simple enough. Uh, Dr. Ott, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me.